Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. Dude, here we are, ready to talk Hello. about Christopher Nolan in the house. This is an episode you really wanted to do. You were especially wanting to do the Batman part of this, oh. and I suggested that we kind of make it all about Christopher Nolan's career. Before we start this, let's catch up just a bit. I am in Florida. I've been in Florida for a little bit. I'm in Northwest mm. Florida. Things are cooling off, which is great. I'm getting ready to go to Nashville. I might even go up to New York. What are you doing in Nashville? I don't know. I'll go up for there for like Thanksgiving and kind of chill out. And Do you have family in Nashville? No, I'm just ready to get some camping in, you know? Oh, I love that plan. Yeah, and I love Nashville. It's such a cool city. And I agree. I agree. I, having lived in Atlanta for so long, you know, we road trip up to Nashville here and there. And I also lived in Nashville for a year and a half when I was a little kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's changed a lot since then. It's very hipster now. Well, I was like, you know, seven at the time. So I didn't know what the word hipster meant. (laughs) I don't even think there were hipsters then. (laughs) My dad worked at Opryland when there was still such a thing as Opryland. No way. Yeah. Way back in the day. The Grand Ole Opry is still there, but Opryland got shut down and became part of Dolly World. Oh, wow. In Pigeon Forge instead. But yeah, when I was a little kid, we'd have like free passes to the park because my dad worked on the, he actually worked on the steamboat associated with the, uh, he worked in the kitchen of the steamboat there for a little while. That's crazy cool. Yeah. Well, you know what I have been doing, dude, is I've been listening to, we just recorded our Dune episode Mm -hmm. um, and I've been listening to the audio book. I was like, you know what, man? Because I like listening to the audio (laughs) book. Yeah, man. I went back and listened, started listening to it. I was, I'm so glad I did because now, because I haven't read the book in, I don't know, probably five, 10 years and probably five years I haven't uh, read it. And so now that I'm going back and listening to the, the audio book is amazing on all uh, I've I've listened to a version of the audiobook. I think there are a couple of different ones out there or whatever, but I listened to an audio version of it not long before I started The Infinite World. So probably three and a half or four years ago. And I really enjoyed it. Oh, uh, there's I, a lot of stuff I forgot about that I was yeah. like, oh, wow. Okay. So they're pulling like this discussion, this dialogue right here. They're pulling. He pulled a lot, Denise oh, did, yeah. into the, the new uh, – the new movie he pulled a lot of that dialogue i was like oh shit that's cool yeah, man that's really cool but there's just again i don't it just reinforces for me more than anything that a movie of dune is only going to be like right. a companion piece nothing right. is going to trump that book it's just too in-depth yeah and that's why i when i tried when i we talked about it in the dune episode which by the time this episode comes out the dune episode will be have been out for a while. That's why I gave it such a positive review is because I try to put it in the context of being a very difficult to make film. Oh, I love you know what the I mean? movie, man. I don't, you know. I mean, I've heard some really crazy mixed reviews from it. It's really funny. Is It's one of those movies that I enjoyed a lot and I think is really good and will definitely watch again in the not too distant future. But when everybody, anybody criticizes it, I'm always like, you know, that's a pretty good point. All yeah, those I mean, combined don't make me stop enjoying it. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, that's cool. Hey, you know what else I just finished was uh, not long ago was uh, Squid Games. I don't think we talked about that. Have you seen it? Well, I think we did talk about that on okay. the Dune episode, actually. I'm pretty did sure we you, did. Did you, uh, on reflection, further reflection, what do you think? Are you, uh, think you'll ever watch it again? I haven't reflected. I doubt I'll watch it again. I did learn that there's a manga that it basically completely rips off. Let me see if I can find it. All right. I'll give you a little bit of trivia while you're looking it up. 
Did you find it yet? It's called Kaiji. Kaiji. So Squid Game is, it's not based on a manga though, or is that one like a, a novelization companion? It's not based on it. Okay, so it's based on Gyakyo Burai Kaiji Ultimate Survivor. Oh, wow. And Kaiji, it, it's basically the plot of Kaiji is a gambling addict goes to a distant place to play children's games where the punishment for losing is death for the amusement of wealthy people. That sounds like it. That's the elevator pitch. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's so they have the same elevator pitch. You know, obviously, I've never read the manga, and I, it's also there's also an anime based on it as well. What year is the manga? The manga that started in the 90s, like 1996. Oh my god! I wonder if he optioned and that. The, it, and here's another thing: is the Squid Game creator says he created Squid Game while reading the manga. Like it's not a secret, you know what I mean? Like if you look it up, he openly he said, stole it. He didn't option it. Changed enough here and there, or whatever, it stops being stolen. Well, I think Harlan Ellison would freaking dis- <laughs> disagree. I think he would seriously disagree with that summary. <laughs> Good old Harlan. Yeah. He'd be like, Har- your book starts with a title with the word V, and my yeah. book started with the word V. So Harlan's suing your ass. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to sue you anyway and see what happens. Uh, yeah, but you're not wrong. A bit of news I just read, sci-fi news. Uh, the okay. Three Body Problem, the book, uh-huh. the series, the which is an amazing series. I mean, oh, loved I it. really loved enjoyed it. it. Enjoy. It's not Dune level, but for me, it's not Dune level, but it's really good. I really thought this was wild and different, and I've never read anything. What like I loved that. about it was that <clears throat> as you read it, it gets more and more sci-fi. Like it yes. starts, it starts sci-fi. Yes. There are plenty of sci-fi concepts at the beginning, but as you read it, it goes from a science fiction story that takes place in like a pretty centralized locale, indicates other places to like being super universal, expanding all the way through time and everything. Yeah, it starts out kind of like contact, right? Where it's yeah, it's, yeah, like, in some ways, yeah, yeah, yes. I think that's a pretty good comparison. Which yeah, we're going to bring up contact very again Very terrestrial, later. you know, right. earthbound. And then it just starts opening up and then it just right. goes crazy. Yeah, like interdimensional <laughs> and guess, all sorts of <laughs> Guess how much it's rumored that they optioned those series of books for, the three series. I remember uh, – okay, well, I just want to hear your number. So you just go, go ahead and tell me. I'm not even going to guess. I want you to guess. So here's the deal is that a few years ago I, I heard a rumor that I think has been debunked. But there was a rumor going around that Amazon – had paid a billion dollars for it. A billion with a B. That's right. But that was that was them in the running trying to get that and Netflix swooped in. Yeah, so Netflix apparently paid some similar number, close yes. to a billion dollars. That was the number. It was very similar. Whatever that number is, it's close enough in the ballpark to be mind boggling. But if I tell you what, if you think about it, it makes sense. Because, you know, how many billion Chinese people, if you can get, you know, 100 million people to sign up for Netflix to watch that series and get them hooked on that morphine drip that is Netflix, you know what I mean? And then you get those residual, you start crunching the numbers and you go, you know what, that makes sense. Besides outside of China, if they make the show consumable for American audiences too – then you're going to get it here too, you know? That's I mean, right. Oh, we're definitely going to get it here. Dude, there's a cast. I mean, they're, ca- they, oh, they they're announcing cast right now. Yeah, no, they've got people signed. I'd definitely like to do an episode about that one of these days. I mean, I know oh, it's, a long sure. time, it's a long time before it comes out, but I definitely would. Okay, we need to get on topic here. Okay, uh, Christopher <laughs> Nolan, man. Yeah, Christopher I, Nolan, okay. This guy is <laughs> just, Well, you know, we're talking about big budget 
stuff right now. You know what I mean? We're talking about big budget science fiction endeavors, and we cannot talk about that without talking about Christopher Nolan, not in 2021. You know, no, and you you know what's great is that you go from someone like we talked about Spielberg, and mm-hmm. you're like he is Christopher Nolan is our generation Spielberg. Sure, or even some people want to put him closer to Kubrick or something like that. You know what I mean? Because that's the thing is he's both the blockbuster and the auteur at the same the time. Very thoughtful, cerebral. Yeah, I agree. yeah, exactly. You're right. You're right. I know there's no shortage out there. Of people kissing Christopher Nolan's ass, thinking he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I have to say, I don't think all of his stuff is great. I don't think anybody thinks all of his stuff is great. But for a guy as young as he is to have accomplished all of the things he has blows my mind. And that's what I wanted to start with was I just wanted to kind of read over Christopher Nolan's background and all that stuff in preparation for this. And the first thing I noticed was that he was born in 1970. He's only just over 50. Yeah. He's so young to have accomplished so much in this industry. Yeah. And it's very rare for a director like to break out before like 35. I mean, 30, 30 years old, maybe, you know. And that does happen occasionally. You know, there are. And that's a good reason to compare him to Steven Spielberg, who was a hot shot at a pretty young age, too, or whatever. But Christopher Nolan hit the ground running with his film career. Yeah. And really hasn't looked back. I remember seeing, you know, you talk about his filmography. I remember when I saw the movie Memento. And oh, yeah. I am. I immediately went back because I love, you know, when you find an auteur like Darren Aronofsky or, you know, P.T. Anderson as far as directors. And then you when you hear about these these people, it's so like intriguing because they're just what they do is so effing difficult because you're not just talking about, you know, painting a painting or writing a book, you know, where you do it by yourself. You got to do it with a crew. You got to inspire people. And so, you know, to have find someone who's very, you know, is into the cinematography like Kubrick, but is also into the storytelling and then and they just have the whole package. It's just rare. Wes Anderson, you know, you know, what's really funny about that is even Wes Anderson is, you know, another person who everyone kisses his ass constantly. But we just watched the trailer for his newest film, The French Dispatch, while I was in the theater for Dune and I was watching it going, man, I'm going to have to come back to the theater to see this, too, because, you know, I mean, when do you not watch a Wes Anderson movie? Right. right. And that's what I mean. Like, this is what Christopher Nolan is that rarefied air where you're like, no matter what they do, Spielberg does or, you know, Arnosky or P.T. Anderson or Tarantino, I'm going to see it in the theater, you know, and now Dennis Deneuve too, you know. We'll do a quick brief history of the guy. Okay. So he was born in Westminster, London in 1970, grew up wanting to be a filmmaker. Like, that was his thing since he was a little kid. He started learning to do it when he was a little boy. He drafted his younger brother, Jonathan, into the game and made him participate in their home movies that he would make. And he grew up, this is one of my favorite things reading this, is he grew up influenced by the work of Ridley Scott and movies like 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Star Wars. Wow. Man, does that ever just really tie in to what this podcast is all about? Uh, Yeah. To the quilt work that is science fiction. Because we mentioned both of those movies. We've done episodes on both of those movies already. And we've talked about Ridley Scott. Two of the pillars of sci-fi cinema, right? Sure, of course. Come on. And another thing that I think is important to mention when talking about him is that his uncle worked for NASA and would send him footage. And it was like something that was a part of Christopher Nolan's life as a young person was knowing that his uncle worked for 
NASA in the 80s. In, in the 80s, NASA was a pretty big deal again, the space shuttle program. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, that you could see how his mind started going towards science fiction at a really young age. And he's like, I'm going to be just like Kubrick, and because of my uncle, I'm going to fake the Mars landing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Gary, if there ever is a Mars landing, everybody realized it didn't really happen. Christopher, Christopher Nolan, Nolan and Elon Musk in cahoots faked it and so you know go ahead and preliminarily add that to your list of conspiracies yeah because we live on a flat earth right right exactly exactly so we got Mars all is, yeah all that's all fake uh <laughs> rocket telemetry doesn't actually exist that's fake because the earth is actually flat okay exactly so when does he get into or when did you hear anything about him developing an interest in cinema was that like from a very very young age for what it says he began making films at the age of seven. Oh shite wow this kid was born for this role there's no question that film was in this guy's blood whenever i hear about like i've always aspired to be a filmmaker myself i've done very little to pursue that dream except for doing a ton of writing which in a way is like filmmaking it's definitely storytelling obviously they're related in that sense. And I went to college for a brief time for acting and did acting as a kid and have been in some other acting roles as an adult too. And I've always lingered at the periphery of the film industry a bit. But I know what separates me from people like him is that he had a camera in his hand at the age of seven because that's all he could think about doing. That's insane. And that was never true for me. Yeah. And that was never true for almost anyone. Most people aren't like that. And when you see somebody who can stick to one topic, one subject so obsessively and passionately that it takes them from being a seven-year-old running around in London to a 50-year-old who is probably the most important filmmaker around right now or would definitely have to be considered in the conversation if you're having that conversation. You know, it takes a whole lot of passion for that subject. And there's no question that it exists in him. So when you were talking about the managing of a crew and inspiring a crew, he was always the man for the job. No, and that's crazy. It's crazy. Like, like I hear, I think that's why I'm so like blown away by these like auteur directors as opposed to, you know, of course I'm into writers and all these different things, but the auteur director to me is like, it's mind boggling that you overcame all of the difficulties because you have to learn. It's kind of like a, a mixed martial artist where you have to learn so many disciplines. You know, mm -hmm. you're, right. what you're creating on screen, so much of it has to do with lenses and film stock or digital or, you know what I mean? Sound and editing. Sound editing is Lighting. massive. Uh, yes. Just film editing, music, the score, the sound effects, the visual effects. It, the list goes on the acting, and on and the on. The you acting, know. The, directing actors. And that's that's one thing that I really, really, really like about Christopher Nolan. I know a lot of people gush about his action sequences. And he does do terrific action sequences. There's no question about it. He's one of the best action sequence guys ever. And I think the reason the Dark Knight series became so popular was, I think, in – large part due to the action sequences. He's really good at creating not boring action sequences. Oh, gosh. He's amazing. 
his action sequences in Inception and Dark Knight and just, dude. Anyway, anyways, hold on. Let's back up. So I, when I first became aware of Christopher Nolan in Memento, I immediately was like, where I'm always with, with the directors, with a really good director, I'm always uh, curious as to where they started out. And the reason is, is because directing is a catch-22. You're asking someone to give you money, Right. To film right. something that probably is going to be very difficult to make that money back. So they're kind of throwing it into a, a black hole, you know, for any mm-hmm. movie, for any movie. And that's why it's so difficult to get movies made and they don't get made. But yet when you're a first time director, directing is one of the hardest things on earth to actually pull off until oh, yes. you're basically creating magic on screen. And so how, let me see the first movie, like with Wes Anderson, it was, I think, Bottle Rocket, right? Right. And so you have like these different movies. And, I, and, and so I went back and I watched his first movie from 1998 following and oh, yes. what was really cool is you see the guy's tenacity because what he did, much like Aronofsky with Pi, I love Pi, by the way, which is oh, yes. was his first movie. Sci- very sci-fi, right? We got to do Aronofsky next. But, but well, it, I just, it doesn't, he doesn't do enough. I mean, I love Darren Aronofsky. I got an opportunity to send him some copies of Infinite Worlds not too long ago, and that was a big thrill for me. But uh, he just uh, his body of work is just, I don't think – science fiction-y enough. Well, I mean, he's got Pi, which is sci-fi. Mm-hmm, that yeah. one is, for sure. And the the other one was really sci-fi. There's a really sci-fi element or, like, section in his movie, The Fountain. The Fountain really is very, very sci-fi. Very. I love that movie. Yeah, me too. That's the movie that really made me – and I liked all of his movies before that, too, but that's the movie – and I know a lot of people diss that movie a lot. I hear that all the time. But that's the movie that made me, like – Wow, this guy but, but, takes risks. But he does horror too with Black Swan. So I, I think yeah, oh, he would, he would be relevant. You know what I mean? I'm gonna push for it. So yeah. I quite admire the director, and it's, I think all of his movies have been fantastic, including Mother, which I know everyone everyone seemed to squirm away from that one. But I, even I thought it was amazing. It was like having an hour and forty five minute long stress nightmare. it was like oh my gosh but i still loved it i just think i like when directors push the envelope a lot so so anyways what back to back to the following in 1998 we go off on tangents so So the following what was so cool about it was that he basically grabbed the camera and this is where that tenacity comes in and he followed he he recruited some actors and he he's so good at story that he was like i am constrained by my environment i'm going to follow an actor around london as he he's the the gist of it was this guy was a writer who was studying up on other people and as he followed people to learn more about character and all that he all of a sudden got pulled into a crime you know right. and so but what was so genius about it was he was able to film this by himself with a camera black and white and follow this guy around uh, London, and right. um, and and uh, an- here's another thing: is it's very difficult. Like you watch Wes Anderson's uh, movies, all of the color and Kubrick also and Nolan, all of the colors, everything is a choice. Nothing right. is by accident. Right. Wes Anderson, Nolan, Kubrick, these guys, every single frame. 
is thought out and there is a decision being made. Now, when you don't have the money, it's very difficult to control for color and think about the effect of color. There's been, you know, makeup companies do billions of years of research on color and the effect of color on our psyche. So what do you do if you can't control color? You shoot in black and white. Hence pie and black and white and the following. So, but anyways, it was, he was able to tell this story with, for, I think he shot it for 3000 pounds, 3000 pounds, you know, and that's a real testament to like being that charismatic leader that it takes to be a filmmaker because he got all of his friends to just be like the actors in that movie and it paid them, you know, what little he could afford to pay them. And they were happy to do it because they believed in him. Yeah. And his, and just for him to say, I don't care if I don't have money. I don't care. Yeah. I have a story. I will tell a story. It'll be a small story. It'll be based on my resources, which again, like Aronofsky with Pi. So I'm going to just make it happen with that, you know, or David Lynch with Eraserhead. And you know yeah. what I mean? These things that become like cultural, like, whoa, dude, you did that with no money. How is it that this guy gets 20 million and he can't do anything? You know what I mean? That is another thing that I think separates the true greats from the pretenders is that what they're able to do without a budget. Yeah. When you look back through film history and you look at all the movies that are cult classics, a lot of them were done on a small budget. But 3,000 pounds, you know, <laughs> that's that is not even abs- like catering for a week yeah, of, of, of yeah, a regular exactly. That movie. is an absurdly small budget. That's a ridiculously small budget. That costs way less to film than the Blair Witch Project, which was done on like camcorders. Yeah, yeah. That is an absurdly small amount to spend on making a movie. You couldn't get a good used car for that. No. So so what did you what did you think about Memento? When you, okay, did, so when did you I first think, see Memento? When it came out. When it came out. I worked at the movie theater at this time in my life. I was a projectionist in the year 2000. I just moved up from Usher to projectionists. I guess a projectionist in training at this time. And Memento was one of the first movies that I got to build. And things are different now. Most movies don't arrive. It's my knowledge. I haven't worked in the movie theater business in quite a while. But in the year 2000, I was a junior in high school and had just started working as a projectionist. Or I was the, the junior projectionist at this movie theater. Okay. And it was one of the first movies I had to build. So when a movie comes in, it comes in in uh, cans that are filled with smaller reels that are numbered or tagged in a certain way to show you how to put them in order. And then you have to physically take the film and tape it together end to end and make sure you do it all in the right order in the right way and then make it into one very large reel. Dude, that's like some fight club shit. <laughs> What's really funny is I decided to be, I wanted to do that because I just watched fight club and i was like i've got to get into this you know what i mean i was like this is did you splice any penises in between uh, the kids movies we did splice things into other no movies way. just to see if you could see it but never anything controversial because yeah. we were not trying did to anybody ever pick it up no you absolutely cannot absolutely oh, cannot you, no cannot, you cannot see one twenty-fourth of a second you can't yeah. see it you can't yeah. see it at all you in fact in Fight Club, the flashes you see are longer than one frame. I know, yeah. Yeah, so to just so that you're, the audience is able to see them. Yeah. And to know that they're tricking your brain and everything. But no, in real life, you can't see it at all. It takes like three or four frames before you even register that something happened. But yeah, I really wanted to be a projectionist. And this was one of the first movies that came in. And I didn't know anything about it at all. 
and knew nothing about Christopher Nolan. I never heard his name, never heard anything about Memento, never didn't know the story that it was based on or anything. The only thing that I knew about it is that the actor that's in that movie. Dude, he's so good, man. Are you Guy Pierce? Guy Pierce. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'll, the only thing I knew is that I had seen Guy Pierce in something not long before that and thought he was good. And it was like, okay, well, it's a Guy Pierce movie. We'll give it a chance. But anyway, but that, that didn't matter. But because I built the movie under somebody's supervision, the deal was is that if you built a movie, you had to stay and watch it all the way through before you could play it for an audience because you had to make sure that you built it correctly. Because wow, if you accidentally put one of the reels like flipped, the sound bar would be on the wrong side, and or it, just put uh, it in the wrong order, right? Or just put it in the wrong order, and that did happen from time to time. It did happen sometimes. The cans that, that came in would be mislabeled, even. You wow. know what I mean? People make mistakes all through the chain. That's cool. I wonder if you would watch him, like you watch a movie and you're like, that didn't, that was kind of didn't make sense right there. Why did he start training after the fight? You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. So it's so funny because I put this movie together and then was supposed to be watching this movie to make sure it made sense that, that, it, that everything was in the right order. And the first fucking movie was Memento, which is not in chronological order at all. Like, it seems to be intentional. Oh, my God. <laughs> that movie would be so hard to tell. Oh, it, yeah, it, such- it really was. And it really was. But because I was having to pay so much attention to what was happening, because I was watching for this reason, I was blown out of the water by this movie. And to this day, it is one of my favorite movies ever, ever made. And okay, Memento is not a science fiction movie, and we've spent quite a bit of time talking about a director who has, I would say, only about half of his body of work is science fiction. But we got to mention, we got to talk about this movie because it, you know, was the breakthrough film for the director in question, and it really is a masterpiece, man. I, Dude, I, it's a, you know, it's kind of like it's what it shares so much with sci-fi is that it's such a like mind trip, right? It, exactly. Like the best sci-fi movies are mind trips, and this really showed that dude we're getting something out of Nolan where his whole it worked for his whole career where it was like dude you don't know what you're in for man it was right yeah and also you know another sort of sci-fi reference is that the movie also starred Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano I can never say his name Joey Pants who are both in the Matrix exactly the the previous year yeah so there is a bit of a sci-fi cut in there too yeah so you could definitely tell that even just watching this movie, which, like I say, doesn't have much in the way of science fiction elements in it, you could definitely tell that the director, even then, you could tell that the director was a science fiction guy. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. It had that feel, like that sci fi feel. feel. It, does have, it does have that feel. Because you're and like going, when you're watching it, you're like, dude, is something, something like I, I was like, is there some kind of time machine? Is this dude getting sucked through a vortex? You know, and then you start uh, like, oh, dude, piecing it together. Piecing it together and put it, yeah. It well, before so we move fun. on to, you know, after this, I just want to point out that another thing that I love from this era is a couple years after this movie, or like the year after this movie came out, or maybe a couple years after this movie came out. They released a special edition DVD, and it is the coolest special edition DVD ever released. And I'll I'll fight you if you disagree. I probably won't fight you. You're a black belt, but I'll fight I'll fight one of your other guys, fig- figuratively. Uh, yeah. So this was awesome because in order to play the special, you could play the movie on one disc. Fine, it just was like a regular disc. But the other disc, which had all the special features on it, you could only access the special features by taking a psychological battery, like. 
you had to work your way through a psychological battery, and depending on how you answered, specific special features would be unlocked. And there was a rumor, which is a true, it's a true story. It's not a rumor. It was a real thing. I just looked it up before we did this, but I was never able to figure out how to do it. And at the time, the internet cannot provide me the answer that you could answer the questions of this uh, psych evaluation. And I'm using air quotes to say psych evaluation because obviously it's not a real one. And you could play Memento in chronological order, the whole film in chronological order. No way. Did when, you do it? I never was able to figure out how to do it when I owned that DVD. Oh, okay. But I just looked it up online and the directions are now just available right here online and you can find them. Thrillist gave us the scoop and also has some cool screen caps. If you look it up on Thrillist Memento Chronological Order uh, and you could see like one of the screens from the special edition DVD and you could read all about it there too. But anyway, I just thought that was worth mentioning because to me in the year 2001, I was 18 years old and it was such a cool like, look what we can do with technology moment. For me, looking at this thing, I was like, wow, this is so interesting because I had never seen anything like that before. No, I mean, uh, most people hadn't. It was it yeah. was very groundbreaking, that movie. And the you know what's cool about it is that, you know, talking about Infinite Worlds magazine and short stories, it was based on his brother's short story. Right, mm-hmm. which I've read and is fantastic. They published it in Esquire magazine a few years after the movie came out. But ah. it was written before it was written before that. And I've read it and it's really good. It's really has it's like a wonderfully written story. It's not very much. I mean, it's like the movie in some ways, but not much. The character's in an insane asylum the whole time. Pretty much all of the other characters in the movie aren't in the story at all. Wow. Uh, but I can see that, though. I'll have to look that up, man. That's dude, pretty dude, dope. Dude, read it. You'll love it. It's real fun to read, and it's really nicely written. And there are a couple of lines in that, that I'm like, this is a great line. Well, his brother's a great writer, man. I mean, Yeah, he is. And, you know, I think the reason that to start on Memento as an introduction to this subject, or not introduction, we're half an hour into this episode, you know, to get the ball rolling on this discussion towards his career is that it really set the stage for his nonlinear storytelling. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and that is a his ultimate trademark as a director. I mean, he's got so many trademarks as a director, but that is definitely the one I think most people, and I, you know, for the better and for the worse, because it definitely pushes people away from his movies as well. You know, a lot of people are like, this is too cerebral or, you know, conversely, this is phony cerebral. And this is just a silly idea that you're making seem more cerebral than it is by doing all this convoluted storytelling. I love it though. I I love those. It goes back for me all the way back to William Faulkner and the sound and the fury. And now it's so just like, especially the first part of sound and the fury, which is narrated by this handicapped guy, Benji. Mm -hmm. And he's just telling the story all over the place and you got to figure it out. And that's what makes it so cool. Let me just tell you today. Well, we'll get to this. I watched tenant today before we did this episode i hadn't watched it yet and i watched it today and i can't wait to get to that i can't wait i'll just go ahead and say i we i heard your opinion of it already or at least what your opinion you expressed last time but i thought it was pretty awesome um like so we're gonna we're gonna maybe disagree on this one a touch but i thought it was pretty great (laughs) like actually i i had prepared myself to be super disappointed in it and i was pleasantly surprised not perfect and definitely often does seem like in a way that Christopher Nolan's kind of like becoming a parody of himself in, in, a, in a certain sense. Like he is kind of like trapped in this certain storytelling style. And because of that, things feel a little rehashed and gimmicky. But if you're just willing to just forget that and just watch the movie just based on the movie, then it's pretty awesome. Um, but we're going to come back to that and skip ahead because 
Christopher Nolan being thrust into the worldwide spotlights coming up pretty soon. Despite this being about Christopher Nolan, we're going to actually try to do this chronologically. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so okay, so we talked about Memento. What'd you think about Insomnia with Robin Williams? Insomnia is a good movie. And Al Pacino. It's a it's a damn good movie. It's a little slow paced, which is not surprising for a movie called Insomnia. Definitely has even less science fiction feel to it than his previous movies, which up until this point, so this is his third film. And so far, there's not really any science fiction in the movies at all. So three movies into his career, he's, you know, he's still making basically crime movies. But Insomnia is a terrific movie. I think it's underrated, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think it's really enjoyable. Yeah, it's tense. Al Pacino rules. Robin Williams rules. Robin Williams is terrific in that movie. But, you know, I, I don't think we need to spend too much time. No, I, I, I think it was a good one. Let's jump to my favorite, which is Batman Begins. And right. the reason I wanted to talk about him, because I was talking to you, we were texting one night, and I'm like, dude, I'm watching Batman again. It's so – and the reason I love Batman Begins is because – and I, I think it's because of Star Wars. Re I really, really do. Is because when I saw Empire Strikes Back as a kid, I was like, Oh my gosh. Empire Strikes Back to me is one of the greatest martial arts movies ever. That's hmm, the way okay. I view it because. Oh, that, yeah, I get sort of, yeah, the training and yes. the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the hero's yeah. journey of Luke going through the training, being a samurai. I mean, let's face it, it is the Jedi or samurai. And that was the most samurai movie of the uh of that those first three so i just was like this is a and then to see the matrix i mean there's such a lineage you know oh, what yeah. i mean of martial arts and sci-fi oh, yeah. and then to see the matrix which is an, a straight out amazing sci-fi martial arts movie and then to me batman begins what i love about the batman trilogy is that batman begins is a pure freaking martial arts movie it is distilled down to you know him learning to train with the uh the the uh what is it the um the league of shadows and yeah. and learning to become like a ninja and having to go through that training and climbing the mountain with that that blue like orchid or that flower uh, dude the whole thing was just and him training with liam neeson and ah, i love that movie is so so if you're into martial arts you got to see those three movies back to back i will say the dark knight trilogy beginning with batman begins is often disparaged for, okay, everybody obviously looks at it as being a big cultural touchstone because it really did change the way comic book movies were made. And again, this is another thing people are like, well, for better and for worse, because the whole DC universe did the whole dark and gritty after this to you Zack know, Snyder and yeah. Zack Snyder and you know to diminishing returns as far as quality. I agree. Totally. But that's not Christopher Nolan's fault. No, exactly. In the hands of Christopher Nolan, that ethos, that theme, that tone was it was magic, you know? Yeah, it really was. And I'm gonna probably get booed and jeered for this, but I personally think Batman Begins is the best movie in that trilogy. That's just me for this. I know almost everyone else will be like, Yeah, except for the Dark Knight, it's the best one in the trilogy. But <laughs> I I stay I stand by what I say, I think it has the smoothest storytelling, and I think there are plenty of good things to like about The Dark Knight, but I also think there are some like uh, stuff about The Dark Knight, too. I think they all three stand as a leg of, uh, under the table, you know, the three-legged yeah, okay. table yeah. that is yeah. his trilogy. I think each of them is different enough to where I'll, I'll agree with you. I'll watch – 
I'll go back and watch Batman Begins and go, oh my gosh, that's the best one. And yeah. then I'll put him on another one. Night. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, well, Heath, you know Heath Ledger comes on, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is the best one. And then oh. I love Bane. That dude, yeah. that airplane sequence at the beginning of Bane, are you crazy? That yeah, shit yeah. was insane. And you know what? Truth be told, I, I feel the same way. I do watch all those movies. And, you know, maybe my um, commitment to that being the best movie would change if I watched the trilogy again now, you know, because it's been a while. I, I haven't watched it in a while. But as they came out, I kept wanting the first one to be – it's definitely topped as far as action sequences and spectacle without question. You know what I mean? The, like it gets eclipsed in both the movies that follow it. But I just think the storytelling of the first one is the best. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. The movie's terrific, and now we're starting to see sci-fi elements take a foothold in his career. And I think that's important to keep in our conversation here, is that he starts with three crime movies, and then he goes to what you call a martial arts movie, which you correctly call a martial arts movie, but is also has science fiction elements. Batman is a fringe science fiction character. His technology that that wealthy man possesses is beyond the technology of everyone else around him, and that's what makes him Batman. Advanced technology that isn't available to most people is the essence of Batman. You know, also, like you said, the, definitely still the martial arts roots and all of those things too. But, you know, when we talk about is Batman a science fiction character, I almost always say, yeah, yes, he is. So I just wanted to say that I think that's where it starts in this, in his career, which definitely, as it goes on, gets more and more and more involved in science fiction. And surreal. Okay. And dude, I'll say even The Prestige, which is out, came right after Batman Begins yes, in 2006. It's like steampunk sci-fi. That is a dope-ass movie. Science fiction movie. Because, okay, even though they're, it's a crime movie, yes, and it's you know about magicians or whatever, in the end, actual science is what's creating this, this situation. Okay, so I don't want to spoil – you know what? The movie came out 15 years ago. If you guys haven't seen it by now, we're about to spoil the prestige for you. But it is because of machine that they – the reason they're able to do – it turns out at the end that the reason they're able to do these magic tricks is because of machines built by Nikola Tesla. Exactly. How much more sci-fi and conspiracy theory and weird can you get? That is X-Files just set yeah. back in that – you know, m m during that time. It was amazing. And another thing I'd love to just mention – is that in that movie, Nikola Tesla is played by David Bowie, and it is fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> how can you not be like, he's such a sci-fi, his whole career is sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. It's like, so, you know, if you, didn't, if, you didn't think it was, if you didn't think that the movie was kind of sci-fi, Ziggy Stardust is in it, for Pete's sake. And The Prestige is another extremely well-made movie. I actually watched this one with my wife. Uh, she hadn't seen it before, probably about a year ago. And the whole time she was like, oh, shit, this is actually really – I did not expect this to be interesting at all because it's about magicians. And I was like, yeah, well, I mean I can understand that. But, you know. No, it it's great. It's, it's good. Look yes. at the cast. First, you got Christopher mm -hmm. Nolan. You got Hugh Jackman. You got Christian Bale. And you got freaking David Bowie. Who yeah. else do you need in a movie? You yeah. Know? yeah, it was amazing. And the twist in it is so good. Let's not give it away, but man, you're just like, what? If you haven't seen the person, basically, if you haven't seen any of these movies that were mentioned, you should go back and watch them because they're all pretty good. Pretty yeah. damn good, actually. Really, really good. And after that came The Dark Knight, and Heath that's, Ledger. And that's when Christopher Nolan 
became gigantic superstar. Even though he had made Batman Begins, which was a big success, and he had made The Prestige, which was a success, and he had made Memento, which is a groundbreaking movie, and he had made Insomnia, which was – all of these were critical and box office successes before this. But it was when he made The Dark Knight that every eye in the world turned and looked at Christopher Nolan and said, oh, shit. <laughs> because this is when he really – okay, this is a, something I really wanted to talk about with Christopher Nolan too is that – one of the reasons I'm able to appreciate his movies so much is because you know me, you know how much I love practical effects in movies. And Christopher Nolan is so light-handed when it comes to CGI. He uses CGI so sparingly. And a movie where you could see practical effects on full display is The Dark Knight. That scene where an 18-wheeler goes end over end they actually turned an 18-wheeler end over end for that shot. Who would do that in 2009 or 2010, whenever that movie came out? In a time when all of the other action movies around were giant CGI Transformers fighting each other and stuff, Christopher Nolan was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to CGI this. We're going to actually do all of these crazy stunts the old-fashioned way. And it shows, man. It, yeah, sho it shows. It's so freaking good. Yeah. I don't care what anybody says. It's so, it's just when it's practical, it's just like, it's timeless. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't a billion agree more. dollars, dude. Billion dollars that movie made. That's crazy. The popularity of that movie and everything are due to his talent as a director. One of the things I was going to say earlier, I, I kind of got sidetracked about talking about his action sequences, is that one thing that I think that is so impressive about Christopher Nolan is his ability to direct actors. There's basically never bad acting in a Christopher Nolan movie. I have not seen bad acting in a Christopher Nolan movie at all. No, it's crazy, huh? He's such a good, he's no George Lucas, you know? <laughs> <laughs> He'll get, he gets some really good performances. He does, he gets, and you know, for Memento, we talked about Guy Pierce. One of the reasons that movie is so successful, besides the brilliant script and just being a really well-made movie, is that Guy Pierce is just so magnetic in that movie. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And we talk about the great performances of Pacino and Robin Williams in Insomnia. And we talk about the great acting performances in The Prestige. But when you think about Christopher Nolan's career, it almost – most people I think who think about Christopher Nolan's career as a filmmaker think about Heath Ledger as the Joker in The Dark Knight. Oh, no doubt, man. That blew – I remember that was like a Michael Jackson moment. That was like where it just changes everybody in society is talking about freaking a movie and a performance, and it was Heath Ledger. And then he died, man. He yeah, got an he Oscar died. for that, right? Posthumous? Yeah, he died posthumous Oscar. And, you know, they call it the role that killed Heath Ledger. <sighs> you know, pushed him mentally outside of his sanity. You know, it drove him crazy and killed him. How much of that is true, I don't know. You know what I mean? And I won't try to speculate, but people do say that about this movie. I'm not going to be a naysayer. I think his acting is absolutely brilliant. It's as good as everybody says it is, 100%. I do have a criticism of the Joker's character in that movie. And this is just a – this is a me thing. Let's hear it. Uh, and, okay, Let's so the Dark, the Dark Knight trilogy, I get that it is designed for a big, massive audience. And that it's a PG-13 movie trilogy. And, you know, because of that, there are limitations to the storytelling. But I personally always thought of the Joker as being entirely evil, not chaos, as being like evil, like wanting to do harm to people. To me, the Joker is supposed to be a sadist who loves hurting people. 
Mm-hmm. So the fact that they changed his character to this character in the movie, he doesn't actually kill anyone that he doesn't kill any innocent people. Yeah. There's the one scene where he gives the two boats the choice to kill each other. So that's, you know, you could, you could argue. Dude, I that, loved that. How he like, when you break down, like what the Joker would, was doing and how he put people in the most gnarly, like saw, remember the movie saw, like yeah, just yeah, saw sure. like freaking experiences. Like you got to make a choice. And it was like, he has the audience are like, Oh my gosh. You know, I think the writing is really good. And I, th- this has nothing to do with Heath Ledger as an actor, and it really doesn't have that much to do with Christopher Nolan as a director either. I don't think he wrote the screenplay, did he, for that movie? Let me let me find out. I don't out. think so. I uh, I think his brother has been in- involved with writing all of the stories, right? Co-written by uh, by Christopher Nolan, so he was involved with the with the writing of it, you know. I mean, he takes a pretty and, – and I, you know what, though, Winston, you can kind of – I'll have to come to his defense on that where he probably wanted to flesh out the character a little more and give him some depth. You know what I mean? No, and I, I support that and I like that the character has depth. For me – okay, so like you know, he kills a bunch of fellow bank robbers. He kills that one guard you know, who tries to muscle him by doing the disappearing pencil trick and all that. that and all, so all, all, all of that stuff is super cool, but none of those are innocent people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, And for me, I, I feel like there just should have been a scene where he just m- brutally murders someone for no reason. Yeah. Based on the comic and, and your your history with, with the Joker. I got it. I got it. Just based on how I grew up understanding the Joker and looking at Frank Miller's Joker and you yeah. know, the stuff I was used to. Yeah. And again, that's not – this movie had to and be Arkham, a PG-13. You like Arkham Asylum? The, exactly. The, yeah, the yeah, yeah. graphic novel, yeah. Yes. I, I think different. Yeah. that's how I see the Joker. You know what I mean? So the Joker to me is supposed to be a bad guy, not an Mm anti-hero. You definitely in the Joker with Joaquin Phoenix and Heath Ledger, you definitely were rooting for the Joker, right? Right. There was a part of you that was like, I love this dude, you know? Exactly. Which is – and that's – I'm sure that that was the conscious decision that Christopher Nolan made was I want people to love the villain, right? Like Darth Vader and like, you know. Darth Vader murders people constantly that's, that's true that's true he don't give a shit he don't give a shit at all yeah. you know what i mean we'll like right, entire, in the, right in the beginning of the movie they destroy an entire planet full of innocent yeah we're people. not gonna we're i'm not a serial killer i'm just gonna destroy an entire planet yeah exactly and that's see, i think that's a that's a big distinction there you know what i mean by not showing them committing atrocities i feel like it engenders a ton of sympathy for the villain oh and, yeah Oh yeah, and, and and I think that's oh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's just not how I thought of that character. Let me ask you an even more, I guess, could be controversial question. What did you think about 2010's Inception? Complete sci-fi to the core. Yeah, this is where the tipping point in his career begins. Is in 2010. So only it's only been 11 years since Inception came out. That movie came out when he, he was only 40 years old when that movie came out. I'm just over here wow. shaking my head. Uh, like he'd already done all this. He'd already done the Batman franchise, you know, right. I mean, already, you know what I mean? For Pete's sake. Okay. I think Inception is awesome. And I don't care who hears me say that. I think that movie is awesome. When people are like, oh, it doesn't make sense. I'm like, no, it actually does make sense. You might not enjoy the story, but it does make sense. I think of it, it the same way all of the, the critics consensus. I look at it the same way as the critics consensus and the Rotten Tomato users consensus. It is a big 
sort of confusing movie that is super, super, super cerebral, mind bending. It's definitely cerebral and definitely mind bending. But the word I'm hunting for is, uh, you know, when you're trying to do something outside of your reach and you succeed. Oh yeah. He, he, that reach on that movie was like, I don't know if I'd ever really seen anything like that. Well, I think that's one of the reasons that this movie was so successful is because people hadn't seen a movie like that. You know, like nothing like that had really come out. Even, Even when you watch the trailers, the cinematography of just the, crazy roof fighting and you know like rolling around on the hallways and all that crazy stuff even if you just base the movie just on the cinematography you know it is one of the coolest movies that's ever been made dude and leonardo dicaprio i mean one of the greatest actors it was dude right his prime was, too like right i know right in his like highest point in his abilities as an actor to take on that role plus there's a ton of other great tom hardy are you kidding me he was amazing in that movie my favorite line is that scene where they're in one of the dream levels and they're like fighting enemy soldiers or whatever. One of the characters is like shooting with a pistol and then Tom Hardy comes up with like a grenade launcher and he's like, mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. <laughs> like, <laughs> I loved it. And that was like one of the first movies that I really saw Tom Hardy in. And I was like, you know what? His charisma on screen was so massive that I was a fan. I look, I went and tried to find him in everything that I could after that. He's great. But I I agree. Tom Hardy rules. Cillian <laughs> Murphy, Tom Berenger, Michael Caine, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Elliot mm-hmm. Page. Are you kidding me? That movie was insane. Yeah, it really did have a crazy cast, excellent cast. Ken Watanabe, uh, you know, Throughout, like all throughout. And another great thing about Christopher Nolan is that he brings characters back a lot, periphery actors, you know, like bit character, character actors back a lot to great effect. Cillian Murphy being one example Mm -hmm. who's in many of his movies. Uh, So I I do applaud his casting choices. And I, like I said before, he gets such good performances out of all of these people. Yeah. it's really impressive to me how no, good it's, uh, it's, it was mind bending. It was, you know, the things that I love about sci-fi. It was, so for me, like you, I, it's one of my favorite movies. Yes, it, it is. It can be difficult. It's not star Wars. You know what I mean? Right. It's more like Dune than it is star Wars, but definitely one of my favorite movies. I was like blown away. I'm glad we agree on that one because I definitely think, you know, it gets a lot of hate. I hear a lot of people being like, oh, Inception's one of your favorite movies. Tell me how smart you think you are. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like one of the big knocks against Christopher Nolan is that people think that people who appreciate Christopher Nolan movies are phony intellectuals because people see Christopher Nolan movies as being phony intellectualism. But I was like, man, I feel like that's a lot of, that's kind of a reach to criticize these movies to me stupid the plot of that at least makes perfect sense to me yeah and not only that i mean isn't the point of of like 2001 and kubrick and all that to to cause us not to come to the same conclusion but to at least ponder ideas yeah yeah you know what i mean and inception is is just like 2001 where you're arguing at the end with yourself and with whoever saw it with you you know, okay, what happened when he spun the top? Is he really in a dream or is he not in a dream? Is you know, that's what I love about the Matrix, you know? Yeah, ambiguous is good for a movie. We've talked about this a lot, you know, being spoon-fed is not necessarily a good way to watch a movie. Although there are good movies, there are good movies like that. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I, I can't enjoy movies that spoon feed you. I just mean in fact I, there are plenty of them that I like. But well, that movie was massive. 
eight hundred and what sixty million dollars, almost a billion dollars. So you know the that's the second office. movie he made that approached the billion dollar box office range. Mm-hmm. That's the the second movie he made that approached the billion dollar box office range, and he's only made five movies or six movies at that point. Yeah, and unlike like Cameron, you know, who does a lot of spoon feeding in his with to great right. effect, and I love Cameron, right. but he's challenging. Chris right, exactly. Nolan is doing this at this level, challenging the hell out of people, you know. Yeah. So I tell you what, 2012, I love The Dark Knight Rises. I love Tom Hardy, like you're saying, bringing back another actor to amazing effect. I love Bane in that movie. I agree. I think the way they do Bane in that movie is awesome. I, you know, I think that is really cool. It changes the character. I think in the comic books, Bane is like Mexican or Brazilian or something, if I could remember no, correctly. Yeah. I think that's right. Uh, mm. I'm not going to look it up, but I, I think that's correct. So they change up the character quite a bit, but that version of Bane is cool. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's And again, there are some crazy cool stunts and everything. Most This is the first time I think the people that started turning their backs on Christopher Nolan and started putting distance between themselves and his movies, I think came with this movie though. And while I agree yeah. with you that the, the movie is good, this is the first one that people were like, oh, that was disappointing to me. Yeah, but very hard to view it with an objective eye. In my opinion, very hard to view it with an objective eye after the death of Heath Ledger. Agreed. He went from one of the greatest villain performances ever and then he dies and is awarded an Academy Award, and then you got to follow that up. Right. You know, it's tough. I agree. And, you know, putting a cap on it was going to be hard no matter what. Everybody assumed, and I think, you know, it's pretty obvious that had Heath Ledger not died, the Joker would have been a villain, at least in small part, in the third film as well, or at least appeared in some manner in the third film as well. You know, played some sort of role. Dark Knight Rises, one billion at the box office. Well, there you go. Three... (laughs) <laughs> approximately, you know, three out of his like seven movies have achieved the success, and all of them up to this point have been successes financially speaking, and you know, critically speaking. Except this is the first one where the critics started being like, "I don't know about this one." I tell you what, from a critical standpoint, I, again, because I thought Tom Hardy, you know what, man. Also, that opening se- action sequence is one of the greatest I think that's ever been filmed. I just put that on my story on my Instagram, and people were freaking i'm like what is this try and guess this movie because it's so action thriller you know what i mean it's just amazing i never saw that coming in a million years i thought it was so creative i actually could be wrong about the critical reception of this movie i'm finding it now actually on rotten tomatoes it has an 87 percent and a 90 percent audience score so i'm actually a little wrong about this but I do remember – I remember that criticism though. That's fair. I remember hearing that. It just seemed to me like from just my own memory that people were like, OK, that's a bad way to end this, the trilogy and the worst of the, the three Batman movies. I remember people were critical about it and in my mind, I immediately chalked it up to the Heath Ledger thing. Well, I tell you what. We get to the next one, 2014, which is the really the most sci-fi of all, right? I think. And that's interstellar. Well, for sure. This is the word I was trying to think of earlier, ambitious, an extremely ambitious film, because he absolutely top loads this movie with theoretical quantum theory and makes it a big part of the plot for this movie and somehow turned a plot that's heavy in that kind of idea. Like mad exposition. Well, you know, that was a big complaint about, uh, about Inception. 
was what the F. I had a friend who was like, what's up with all the exposition? I'm like, you don't get sci-fi unless you get that, you know, like Dune, if you read Dune or Three-Body Problem, like we were talking about earlier, you're talking about a tremendous amount of exposition. That's what sci-fi readers look for. Right. I personally think of all the movies he created, this is one that I think makes the least sense. I don't quite get... The, I'm not saying that the science is necessarily wrong. I just don't get the mechanisms used in the storytelling. I don't get being in the, um, what do they call it at the end of the movie, the uh, time tesseract and signaling through Morse code through time and all that stuff or binary code through time or whatever, whatever it was. I, I don't understand how that makes sense or why it happened. It was tenuous and I agree. That was my biggest my biggest complaint with the movie. I was like, it seems like these things are thrown together and they're not that strong of a bond between them. That's the way I felt too. And I was like, I don't see what that matters. I tried to explain it and I was like, it's like something like, I don't know. I, anyway, despite all that, there were tons of amazing things in Interstellar besides that, you know, kind of a key plot element that were spectacular science fiction. Yeah. Some of the planets they visit – the robots that are in that movie, just the the future setting, the setting of the movie is masterful to me because it's like the slow apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And that is how I imagine an apocalypse to be, you know, like a slow burn. Yeah. And I love that, that environment too. So overall, I think it's a terrific movie. I am not a hater on Interstellar, even though I do think that the central plot device is like you said, pretty damn tenuous. Yeah. All that being said, more great acting performances throughout. I think it's considered to be right now one of the greatest science fiction films ever made by a large percentage of its audience, of the science fiction audience. Tons of people love it. It made $700 million on a budget of $165 million. That's stupid. That is stupid. How is this guy so good at making money selling plots that are so hard to understand? Yeah. And, and that's pretty hard sci-fi too. You know, we're not. It's, there's not much fantasy sci-fi at all. Yeah, it's it's straight up hard. Yeah, and you know, he really doesn't play around with fantasy at all. Like I said, he tried his best to push a straightforward science fiction story here, and uh, you know, he succeeds. No, it's cool, man. He's he's playing around, you know, too with time dilation, you know, which we see f- as far back as Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a cool trope, and he just kind of took it to another level. To but you know, how can I wrap up this emotional story? between this family using time dilation. Right. And I, that's where it in wormholes and all that. It stretches it a little thin because of that. But, uh, you know, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, well, the other thing I want to point out is that Interstellar is so similar to Contact in so many respects. Yeah. Besides, you know, being a very similar story in a lot of respects. It's simply not a ripoff. They're completely different stories, but it has a lot of similar themes. Yeah, and tonal characteristics of the family. And, right. uh, you know, we're starting out with the younger girl. and the, Yeah, for sure. And they both star Matthew McConaughey. So, uh, you know. Ah, <laughs> and they both and they both jump forward in time. Exactly. Right? Yep. They have that. The, yeah, no doubt. I still like Contact better. Contact. I could watch Contact any day of the week. Okay, you know? so it's funny you should say that. I like I like both movies a lot. And you know, I obviously saw Contact way before that, and I've read the book Contact. And you know, I'm, Carl Sagan is like one of the greatest heroes. He's your dude. He's right? my dude. You know, Andrian is his widowed ex wife. You know, who actually wrote the book together. Yeah, I, I've got a lot of appreciation for that. But I 
am being objective here and saying that even though the movies do have a ton, a ton of tonal themes, I think they're different enough so that they can completely stand separately from one another. Yeah. Maybe Contact walks so that Interstellar could run. But like you said, you just said that you let Contact the movie better, even though it obviously was a way lower budget movie. I just, I just found the characters to be more fun. Like if I went back and I was spending time with the characters of either movie, I would choose to hang out with the characters of Contact. That's a big thing for me. And I, I agree. I think Contact is a really underrated movie too. Maybe we could do an episode on Contact one of these days. Oh, it'd be so sick. Maybe we could talk all about Carl Sagan. Yeah, too, we, we, we'd be a contact episode, but we could talk about Carl Sagan a lot. Yeah, that would be so cool. And, and Andrea. Um, okay, so Interstellar. Is, and he goes on and he, he does Dunkirk after that. Okay. I, 2017. One thing you got to know tell, about me, me is that I absolutely, I, I've talked about this on a several episodes in the past, but I am low-key obsessed with World War II history. And I am low-key obsessed with war in general because it's so horrifying. So I basically watch any remotely good-looking war movie that comes out. Any yeah. any war movie that I see the trailer don't roll my eyes the whole time. I I watch pretty much all of them because it's one of those things. Like I, you know, I Infinite Horrors is about how fascinating allowing your mind to be in a place of fear can be. Like all of the horror movies in the world combined aren't as scary to me as a war movie because war is fucking real. You know what I mean? And Jason God. Voorhees didn't Horrifying. didn't kill 5% of the Earth's population. You know what I mean? Like hundreds of millions of people. But World War II did, and that happened. So war movies are a really hard thing to take on because you have to try to make people understand the horrors of war, but also tell an interesting and compelling story. And Christopher Nolan took his whole nonlinear time attitude towards this movie and you know it's a really really good movie <laughs> no it's amazing it's it's like one of his masterpieces it's you could see him going back and being like i'm gonna have my own saving private ryan right yeah and that's you know it's kind of that do i think it's as good as saving private ryan probably not but it's definitely less spoon-fed to you than saving private ryan is yeah oh yeah it's definitely a more challenging movie except for the opening few minutes of saving private ryan are pretty challenging and just the, how gruesome they are yeah all right, dude. I've been waiting and I'm like chomping at the bit right now. I want to talk about 2020's Tenet. I saw it one time. I did not see it. I got an early screener version from somebody and I did not see it with subtitles, which I wish I would have. I kept going, I don't, I can't hear anything. What are they saying? What are they saying? Yeah. So tell me, you just saw Tenet and you loved it. Just watched tell it. me about it. Tenet is based on a very cool science fiction idea. And that's my favorite thing about this movie is that the idea behind it is a very novel science fiction concept. And the general concept is at some point in the future, they learn how to reverse entropy on objects and or people and allow that object and or person to travel backwards through the flow of time. Not allow it, force it to. And people here in the present start finding objects that are moving backwards through time against the grain. The two timelines reach the point where they're, you know, coalesced. The movie is about all of these regular ass secret agents that live on Earth doing their regular secret agent stuff who discover this problem and try to pool their resources to do something about this. So the plot device, does it make sense? I guess is the big question. I don't know. Kinda? A little bit? Yes and no? But I was able to suspend my disbelief on that and enjoy the movie anyway. 
because I think it's got, it had really cool action sequences. There were some pretty silly ones too. There's one scene where the car moving backwards in time is chasing them, driving backwards. And I was like, okay, that's a little ridiculous. You know what I mean? It's facing the wrong way on the road. It's not more backwards in time. It's facing the wrong direction on the road. But that being said, I thought it once again brought out great acting performances from everybody involved. Personally, it stars John David Washington, who's Denzel Washington's son, who, by the way, in case you guys didn't know this, was a NFL running back before he switched to acting. Like he played football for years and then switched to acting. No way. I didn't know that. Yeah, he uh, went to Morehouse and got a bunch of football scholarships, got drafted by the L.A. Chargers, or I think it was the San Diego Chargers at the time. And played on their practice squad for a couple of seasons and then went to a B league and then played there for like five years before ever even thinking about acting, even though both of his parents are actors, you know, one of them being one of the most famous actors in history. Then he basically didn't do any acting at all until he was in Black Klansman, Spike Lee's Black Klansman. If you, if you haven't seen that movie, it is amazing and hilarious. And I really it. Super, yeah, it was good. super, super entertaining. And he is terrific in it. But I thought he did a great job in Tenet. Too. You know, Tenet does have that thing where it's like secret agents doing secret agent stuff, born identity movies and all the other, you know, there's always some dude who's great at martial arts who could just disarm somebody and knock them out with one punch and, you know, around. But if I'm going to just allow myself to enjoy that trope, I think he did a really good job at that character. You know what I mean? I think he played a really cool, really smooth talking spy dude, fearless spy dude. I thought Robert Pattons is in it and he's, you know, his character is kind of a bit of a pastiche, you know what I mean? Not like a super serious character with a lot of depth, but he does a good job handling that. Elizabeth Debicki is in it and she does an excellent job. Overall, I thought it was a pretty damn good movie. So I should watch it again. I should give it another chance because what I said to myself was, I I'm, I think I watched it right when it came out, but what I said to myself was, I have got to make sure that I go back and watch this with subtitles because I just could not, I, the, the dialogue, I could not freaking follow it. And I was like, oh man, there's got to be, this is Christopher Nolan, there's got to be something here that is justifying my time of watching this because I just could not get into it. But I'm going to watch it again. Well, I would recommend that. I enjoyed it. Like, and I, I kind of look at it as a just kind of a spy movie with a bit of a science fiction pretext almost. And again, it definitely veers into absurdity several times. Like there are several times through the movie where I'm like, OK, they're really trying to push this idea or try to represent this idea visually in ways that are kind of annoying. So it's not a perfect movie. It is probably... I can't, you know, I have to say it. It's one of his worst movies. But the fact that I just watched it and enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm calling it one of his worst movies, only goes to show you that this guy is a terrific director. No, I can't. I'm, I can't wait to watch it again then, because I kind of made a commitment to myself that I would do that, and I just haven't gone back and done it. And I think it's on HBO Max now. It is. I, that's that's why I, how I watched it because I, yeah. you know, and it was one of those movies that came out during the pandemic and then kind of like was supposed to be a big theater experience. And yes. then I think a lot of people, you know what I mean? And then people watched it at home instead. And we're like, what? It's not, it doesn't seem like a small box movie at all. And I, I'm pretty sure I remember Christopher Nolan like losing his mind because of that. He wanted yeah. it delayed and all, all this stuff. Yeah. I can see that. But you can't. You can't. You know what I mean? It's it is what it is. So his last movie then that's coming up is Oppenheimer. Yeah. Again, World War II drama, although, you know, it's kind of removed from the actual war itself. But while World War II was going on, there was this whole other thing 
going on with scientists of the world trying to crack the atom and the Manhattan Project. And Well, I, I think what's going to be cool about, you know, there's so much that we don't know about it. And there's so much cult lore about Oppenheimer and, you know, what, what was he really into? Was this part of the New World Order? What is he, you know, is he going to play, is Christopher Nolan going to play this straight? Or is he going to bring his like kind of madness to it? And because he's such an action director, even Dunkirk and you know what I mean? I, it's right. hard to imagine that we're just going to get a straight biopic of uh, Oppenheimer, especially because he's shooting this for IMAX on 65 millimeter film, which is that massive freaking uh, cell that they shoot on. So uh, you got to think that he's going to be doing some action there. And I'm so pumped for the cast. I mean, you, again, like Cillian you were Murphy saying. As Rob, Murphy looks a ton like Robert Oppenheimer. <sighs> like I, I'm looking at pictures of them like side by side and it's a really good casting choice because he does look like him for sure. Emily Blunt as his, as Oppenheimer's wife. I mean, dude, I love Emily Blunt. And here, I just saw this thing from yesterday that Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr. just joined the cast of this movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped, man. I think he could bring something just like he did to Tesla. I'm hoping that he brings something besides, you know, again, a straight uh, biopic. So, Well, I, I doubt he will. I doubt it'll be straight. And But here's the cool thing about this is that he definitely tries to keep the science in science fiction. That is a big – it seems like a big goal of his as a director. Yeah. And now to, the, now to the point where we're discussing uh, this movie is about actual science that actually happened starring the characters or scientists. I think that shows his commitment to the genre to me. It seems like that's the rabbit hole this director has been going down since the beginning. Is that Since he stepped in the science fiction game, you know, he grew up with it. Made crime films because, you know, for a low-budget director, crime is a lot easier of a genre to make than science fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And brought his twist to it, though, you know. And, and it brought his twist to it. it is, yeah. But once he started having the budget to make science fiction films the way he envisioned them, he's been going down that rabbit hole for sure. And the story of Robert Oppenheimer that I've read, you know, like I said, I've been into World War II history for a long time and the Manhattan Project and all that stuff. It's a crazy thing, you know what I mean? Dude, it's so crazy. We don't know what kind of take we're going to get. We could get a Dr. Strangelove, like, black comedy out of it. We just don't know. Oh, my God. You that know? would be incredible. Right? He hasn't done any comedies yet, but that I could that I would be super right? impressed. Right? He could do a black, dark, you know what I mean, where it's like, yeah, I am Shiva, you know? This yeah, is I it. become Death Destroyer be of Worlds. Yeah, dude, that's it. That's how the movie – that's like what it's all going to hinge on. We just don't know what that catchphrase is going to be anchored to. You know what I yeah, mean? Exactly, is exactly. He gonna, who knows? He could open new dimensions. Who, who freaking knows where he's going with it? So I'm pumped, man. I cannot wait. Okay, so this was a good episode. I was a little hesitant to do this episode because I feel like there's only kind of a bit of a connection to science fiction, and I try to keep the podcast as science fiction related as possible. But I really do feel like the, having done this discussion, there was a lot more connection than I thought. Yeah. This was a more necessary episode than I had thought going in. Yeah. No, I, th I think it's, it's cool to feature like directors because they're storytellers who are so rooted in sci-fi, even though they diverge in parts of their storytelling of their career away from that. You know, you got Danny Boyle we could talk about, mm -hmm. you know, who mm -hmm. did Sunshine, but also did the horror like with the, the zombie movies. And well, those movies are science fiction too. Yeah. Like, Zombies are typically science fiction. I know. Like not not always. Not always. There are like voodoo zombies and magic zombies and stuff. But, you know, when it's a disease that's causing that, that's science fiction. Yeah. I, dude, we got to go do Danny Boyle then. 
We, we will, we'll put them on the list. We'll put them on the list. And now it's Garland. <laughs> but there's also so many. We've got, we've got a few classic directors to talk to catch up with. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I know we, we haven't done a Kubrick episode. You know what I mean? I don't think we need to because we did 2001 and we talked so extensively about Kubrick in that episode. I definitely want to mix up the historic with the contemporary. No, I love it. That's another reason I was sort of hesitant to do this episode is because Christopher Nolan is such a contemporary subject. Yeah. He's still completely right in his stride as a director. You know what I mean? Like I said, he's only 51. He'll be making movies that everyone goes and sees for the next 20 years, probably. Yeah, but you know what's going to be really cool, dude, is after like humanity has been destroyed by the AI, and then mm-hmm. the AI wants to come back and they want to learn about how humans felt about you know storytellers at the height because they're developing their own simulation, right? Ancestor mm-hmm. simulation. Mm-hmm. They're right. going to come back and listen to this podcast. And right. this is going to be a sampling for the AI as they're building out the ancestor simulation. So it's- We had an AI listen to 100 hours of the Infinite Worlds podcast <laughs> and, then, and then program a simulation for the rest of humanity. And this for is what it came up you with. you listening to it who think you're human, but you're not. <laughs> actually, actually, that already happened. And what you're listening to now is actually just an episode of the podcast written by AI. And we've been turned into radiated ash a thousand years ago. Exactly. Actually. Exactly. It's actually – yeah, and so, we've just been so. brought back, just resuscitated into this hell in which we mm-hmm. just have to keep living every single day just so we could bring these episodes to you. So you better exactly. appreciate Sorry, it. Sorry, guys. It's <laughs> just a tough break. Okay, uh, I don't know what we're going to do next. One thing I'd really like to do, actually, just because I'd like to get some of those like classics. I like to do like crowd pleasers, too. You know, What about Predator? Oh uh, yeah, let's do it. There's so many in there, like Alien yeah, versus a bunch Predator, of movies. and yeah, we could talk about we can get talked about all those. But really, just the first one would be the central focus of the episode. But we definitely would talk about the sequels and everything. Predator Two is also awesome, dude. I went back recently and watched Predator, and I was like, "What the fuck? This movie's so good! I can't believe how good it is." It's one of the best action movies, like straight up action movies ever. Breaks, so, breaks all the rules. That's what I loved breaks about all the it. Rules. I was like, yeah. wow, that's so non-formulaic. Very cool. All right, let's do that next. That sounds good. Okay, so Predator next. We'll try to record it next week. All right, dude, that, this was a good one. All right, brother, that was awesome. We'll catch it like next time. Later. All right, up. be easy, y'all. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds-related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker. And our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 